pleasure to welcome you all here. Welcome. Well, you may have heard uh, Roger Billings talking recently about several new courses that are in development that are coming out. Well, I'm excited tonight to announce that our new grade three math featuring Mark Rogers has been released. So that's coming. You can clap for that. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Just in case you second graders needed some extra inspiration to push through, you know, you're going to love grade three math. So it's coming up. Well, it's time to turn the time over to Dr. John and the Technology Spotlight. Do you know what's different about little teeny robots and little teeny creatures? Little teeny robots are always hard, and little teeny creatures can sometimes be squishy, soft, right? <laughs> well, actually, that just changed. Some new researchers in Germany and Austria have been working on squishy robots. <laughs> cool stuff. This is what we need. And they're really small, too. I want to show you a little video so you can kind of get an idea of what's going on. Oh, look. It looks like it's hugging. <laughs> get it? Squishy? He's a softie, right? <laughs> uh, but actually, if you look up in the corner, that was 120th of actual speed. So one of the really amazing things about these new soft robots is that they can move really fast. That was going on 20 times faster than it looked like in that video. Uh, but you're probably wondering now, do we really need little hugging robots? <laughs> well, actually, they can do more. In fact, they did all kinds of things. Let me show you another thing that they did with the same technology. You see over there on the right, the little robot is actually swimming. And it's propelling itself by moving those little flippers back and forth. And on the left, you can see the simulator of how they simulated the movement would work. So that's pretty neat. It was swimming around in the water. They actually made another version that walked, and they made a version that kind of levitated. <coughs> so there are, there are a lot of things that they're doing with it, but how are they doing it? They're actually using magnets. These robots are powered with magnetic waves. I want to show you a little slide that kind of shows how they made it. They started <coughs> with some rare earth magnets that were all ground up and then some silicone rubber and they put them on their spinning table and they formed a really thin sheet. In fact, the sheet was about a tenth of a human hair in width. And then they took it into a magnetic field and trained all of those magnetic particles so they all point the right way. Then they took that rubber sheet and they cut out the shape that they wanted for the type of robot. And there are a lot of different kinds of shapes for different things that they wanted to make. Then when they put that rubber in a magnetic field, it moves in really strange and exciting ways. So that kind of explains how they did it. I want to show you another video where they actually used a permanent magnet. And in this case, they actually made a little gripper. And you see the B with the arrow? That's pointing, that's showing which way the magnetic field is. And now it's pointing down. Oh, they got it picked up. Come on, you can do it. Come on. All right, they got the little piece picked up, and now they're going to move it over. And you wonder how they get enough time to do these kinds of things, right? <laughs> Success, all right, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, uh, this is a good time to point out how they came up with this rubber, magnetic rubber robot idea. 
Turns out that the researchers were, well, a researcher was playing around with a little piece of rubber on his desk, you know? <laughs> He's just kind of playing around with it, and all of a sudden, well, you can imagine, here's my version, you know, his boss came in, what are we doing? Well, we just invented a new robot, <laughs> right? <laughs> Ta-da! Uh, but actually, it turned out pretty amazing. And they found that the thinner they made the rubber, the faster and the robot would move, and the less energy, the less magnetic field it took to get that movement. And uh, I want to show you one more thing that they did with this robot. They actually used it to catch a fly. Watch this. And again, this is in really slow motion, and it's snap, and the simulator's on the other side. And then they closed it again, and then they let the fly get away. <laughs> and I was wondering, you're probably wondering, well, why didn't they catch it, you know, not let it get away? But they were careful in the paper to explain that the fly was not hurt in the experiment, <laughs> because, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but it's amazing, if you think about it, that little um, actuator was faster than the fly. It was actually fast enough you could see to close twice on the fly before it could fly away. So there are a lot of interesting applications for this new technology. Uh, one of them, of course, is, um, you know, fly catching, maybe. <laughs> they were comparing it to a Venus flytrap, and it actually can close quite a bit faster than the natural Venus flytrap that is a plant that catches flies. So that's pretty interesting. But they also think that it will be really helpful in studying biomechanics, which is the way that uh, living things can uh, move and stuff. And then also maybe even small-scale power generation, because those are magnets that they're moving around. But I'm sure that you'll be able to come up with some new and even more creative ideas on what they could do with that. And that's all the tech we have the time for. And now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. All right, so I'm really excited because I get to tell you about something that I carry with me every day. That's right. Let me get it out for you. Hello? Oh, wait, <laughs> wrong one. Sorry. Oh, here it is. My portable cell phone, you know, I can take calls, swat flies. Um, this is what phones used to look like all the time. Now, of course, we have these flat ones that we all carry around. You know, this is so much cooler because it fits the arch of your face, right? But then that wasn't pocket worthy, so we made them flat. But telephones, you know, we do a lot with telephones, but really the original point of telephones was just the discussion the being able to speak here and have your voice put way, 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 way over there and have someone hear you and have a conversation remotely. And that's a pretty amazing thing. And when we say, we're going to talk about the telephone, you, you probably immediately go, oh, Alexander Graham Bell. No. Well, actually, yes. Well, sort of. Okay. So <laughs> we, need to, we need to jump before Graham Bell to Johann Philipp Rice, and he was a German inventor who in the early 1800s heard about, or the fairly early 1800s, learned about a new invention called Morse code. And this is a different breakthrough with a gentleman named Samuel Morse. And basically, it used an electrical current on a wire. And by changing that current, or turning it on and off, you could take 
a, sig a message from here and use that current as a signal, run it on a wire much, much further away and have somebody get that signal and convert it, write it into whatever you were trying to tell them through Morse code. Now, when Johann heard about this, he started to think about what if we could do that with our voice, okay? I mean, if I want to speak to somebody far away in the room, I just shout, okay? Um, if you want to speak to somebody in another room or miles away, you can't really do that even, I mean, as loud as some of you are. Um, you can't really do that. So he thought, what if I could take sound? Now, remember, sound is vibrations going through the air. So as I am making sound, there's vibrations traveling through the air. If I could take those vibrations and convert that movement into electrical current, it would go across the wire, it could go really far, and then I just need something else on the other end to take that current and turn it back into the movement. So he did something really interesting. He made this little box, and there was a hole that you spoke, well, shouted in, um, and he had a membrane, a material stretched really flat and tight, and he had two wires on either side of the membrane, and basically, when you would shout into the a box, it would make the membrane vibrate, and it would change the current on that wire. And that current change would go down the wire, and then he had a coil of that wire and put an iron rod through the center of that coil. It turns out if you vary the current on a coil with an iron rod in the middle, you can start making vibrations. So he put that in a wooden box. That's basically his speaker. So you shout in this side, and then there'd be vibrations tied to your shouting. And he actually did a, a demo of this. And scientists came and he said, the horse is not eating the cucumber salad. <laughs> Very scientific. Now, no, actually it was. Because he could have said, how are you doing? But he didn't want to say something you knew. So if I said, how are you? You probably would guess that last thing was doing. He wanted to say something so random, which it was, that you would have to just hear what was next. And he actually got it to the point where you could make out cucumber, horse, and salad. And he actually got some very muffled but sound. All right, and then we have to jump to Mr. Bell, Alexander Graham Bell. And he knew about this and learned about this inventing that Johann had been doing. And he decided he wanted to take that further. And he started working on how can I get this sound better, more clear. And so he starts working here, and that's his... He's the guy uh, in the black jacket and his uh, assistant, Watson. And they start working on the liquid telephone. And it's literally liquid. If you look at that graphic again, there's a tiny little container underneath that huge cone. And that tiny container actually has liquid in it. It was actually sulfuric acid in, in a lot of his tests. And basically, you talk in the top of that cone. You talk down into it. It would go, the, the sound would vibrate a diaphragm on the bottom, and the diaphragm had a cork with a needle sticking out, and the needle went down into the sulfuric acid, and as the diaphragm vibrated from your voice, the needle would go deeper or more shallow in the liquid and change the current level, so it would be a stronger current or a weaker current, depending on how deep it was. And that's what he was working on. So he's working on this, him and his assistant Watson, and then the famous moment when he told Watson, he called for Watson, and he said, Watson, can you come in here? I need you. And he had actually spilled some sulfuric acid, I think, um, at least according to some versions of the story. And he, I come in here, I need you. And Watson came right in and said, I heard you. Of course you heard me. I just shouted. I heard you 
on the telephone. And he was, they were very excited because he actually, it worked. And they started working on, okay, we need to get this finished to be like enough to patent it. And they called it the telephone. Now, I do have to mention the telephone, even the name telephone came from Johann Rice. And he called his um, contraption the telephone, well, not telephone, that's not German, is it? It's a, it's a telephone, okay? Uh, that's, that sounds more Arnold, okay? But it's cool, okay? The telephone was invented for selfies, okay? But, but they, they start working on it. It's getting exciting. Well, the next part's a little gray, okay? Because the day he submitted the patent for this invention, the same day uh, an American inventor named Elisha Gray happened to be submitting a patent that was very similar, and Alexander Graham Bell got to the patent office two hours before. Now, how did he know there's some versions of the story that he got tipped? I don't know how. I mean, they didn't have telephones, okay? <laughs> but one way or another, he got in there first, and what would ensue was actually some serious lawsuits over who owned these rights. Elisha, Elisha Gray's actually, in some ways, worked better. Well, eventually, it would go all the way to the Supreme Court, and Alexander Graham Bell would win the the ability to profit off of this patent. And by the way, it would become like the most profitable patent in history. Um, and he, as he starts, okay, he starts this invention and trying to make it go mainstream. But he runs into a lot of issues, okay? And now we have to go to his next version, all right? So basically, this is his next version because the first one was that liquid telephone, okay? You're not gonna go around to people and say, hey, uh, you wanna buy the liquid telephone? Careful, it spills, okay? That sulfuric accident is painful. Just ask Watson, okay? <laughs> no, uh, that didn't work very well. So he needed another way. So what they did was instead of having a diaphragm that bounced a needle that went into liquid, they took an electromagnet at the back of the diaphragm. So when you'd speak, the diaphragm would shake and it would move the electromagnet, which would change the current on the wire. So if you look at this picture, he's talking into the, into, you know, the speaking point that goes to the back where there's a diaphragm and it's vibrating and that's changing the current. He also realized he could put this on either end. So you could speak on one side and that diaphragm and the electromagnet, it's your microphone. But on the other side, he put the same kind of contraption because it could work both ways. So you could take it, you could talk, you could listen, and that's kind of how his product was. Hey, how's it going? Oh, good. You know, like this. So you could do both and that was a cool thing. Um, and so they started looking at that, and it was much better, obviously, than the liquid telephone. Well, unfortunately, it, was, it didn't become like a huge hit, okay? Some, some wealthy people started installing a direct line from here to here, and now they could talk to somebody in another building. But it was still really, really m muted. It sounded like somebody was talking to you from the box, inside of a pillow, inside of sand. Uh, it, was, it was really hard to hear. It wasn't good enough to be mainstream. And if you get an invention that's really amazing, if you can't push it to that point where people are actually gonna want it because it's so good, it, you might have a hard time. And that's when we need to go to somebody who pushed it, you could say, into the light where it actually found success. And his name was Thomas Edison, okay? Yes, and so what Thomas Edison would get involved with is with another company named Western Union. And this is the company that Elisha actually went to and he had ideas, but unfortunately, they were all similar to the patent that Alexander had won. And Alexander had started a company called Bell. And so they couldn't do the phone that they wanted to, so they asked Thomas Edison, hey, can you create a telephone 
that doesn't use Alexander's patent. And Thomas Edison said, yes, I can. And I can also make it a lot better because I'm confident we can make it sound better. So he started doing a very thorough investigation of how can you do that? How can you more in finer detail take sound and convert it into electrical signal? Because that was the, the issue. The speaker side, using the electromagnet as a speaker worked great, but the microphone, it didn't get enough of that detail in your voice and take it over. So he went through, and it's a phenomenal thing to research, of how many things he tried um, that we're not going to get into tonight. But eventually he would discover that carbon, if you take carbon and you apply small amounts of pressure to it, it changes how resistant that carbon is to the a current that you send through it. So if you send a current through carbon, especially carbon, like carbon powder, if you apply small amounts of pressure, it will change how much current it will let through. And so what he did was he took a little tray, you could say, put carbon powder in it, and then he put a disc on top, and that disc was going to be connected as the diaphragm. So you would speak right at that disc, and that would be the thing that vibrates, and then he sent a current through it. So as you spoke, it vibrates, changes the pressure on the carbon, and that changes how much electric current goes through. And the detail of how much or how less current would go, depending on that pressure, was so much greater. And so all of a sudden, they had a very, a much more high quality sound being produced. And that took it into something that could be used. Here's a quick diagram of his patent that he patented. And that's the thing where, that you talk right into. So it wasn't this big, deep thing with an electromagnet. It was able to be much smaller, and it, it became hugely widespread. And we're not going to go into that of kind of how that happened. But eventually, it would go to Bell. Like, they would get it from Western Union, the patent. So they would own it, and Bell would become huge, and eventually AT&T, if you want to know. Um, but that would go all the way to being used in the bottom part of telephones up into the 1970s. The carbon microphone would still be used. And they didn't just use it in these. They realized, wow, we could use that in broadcast microphones. If you watch those old movies where the guy comes in and goes, duh, duh, duh. okay, I always thought they'd do that to, are, are we on? Are, no. They, if you... If the carbon gets too flat, it doesn't work as well. So they would tap on the microphone to kind of loosen up the carbon, hello, hello, and tap on it. And so pretty amazing that that invention would hold up all the way to then, um, something that uh, you could say was a competition that Thomas Edison saw. Uh, but so something that somebody had as an idea, and it grew, and it grew. And of course, now we have phones that do incredible things from talking to sending photos to email to texting, and of course, most important, taking selfies. So, <laughs> thank you. And now, introducing Roger Billings. That was good. I like that one. <laughs> no vibrations. No sounds. Hey, they're going to turn on. I can hear it. I'm fixing the carbon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, 
those are some pretty good stories. Yeah. So Dr. John's got this idea about these soft robots. It's kind of like gummy bear robots. <laughs> and if they're fast enough to catch a fly, ooh, they'd be good. Fly in the middle? Protein? No. <laughs> anyway, let's don't go there, right? And then what about Thomas Edison? So he made the phone better. You know, uh, when Thomas Edison was pretty young, he started a project to make a way so that people could monitor what was happening at the stock market. Is the stock going up? Is it going down? If you own a stock and it starts dropping in value, you can run over and sell some before it gets too low. And so he invented a thing called a ticker tape. And I actually had a tape that would go through and it punch holes so you could see what your stock was. And he made so much money off of that one invention that he started a thing called Menlo Park, which was his research laboratory. And it started out with a building about the size of the building that we use at our little factory to make our pods, about 6,000 square foot building. And his idea was to get everything he could in that building, every screw, every material, every chemical, he gathered them all. Wow. So that whatever he needed to research, he'd have it there. And remember when he made a light bulb? He tested 1,000 things to find out what would be the best filament, and everything he tried burned up. Mm -hmm. And so finally, he got this idea, let's put it inside of a glass and pull all the oxygen out, then it can't burn. And guess what substance he used that worked in the first light bulb? A carbon fiber. Neat. And guess what he used in the microphone? He tried a lot of different things. Yeah. And then he did a carbon fiber. Just think, no carbon, no Edison. You know, it's fun for me because Thomas Edison mentored Bill Lear, who mentored me, who's mentoring Jacob and the rest of you. <laughs> kind of exciting to have that genealogy. Well, tonight, we want to talk about a really important concept. And it's going to be a little tricky to catch this concept. Okay. And so I want everybody to pay a lot of attention because when you catch it, and you will, if you'll really try, if you'll really pay attention, you'll be able to understand a lot of really neat things about our world. So we're going to go in kind of deep. But before, I have to tell you, you know, we've been talking a lot about aliens. <laughs> well, it turns out that I think maybe I'm the alien. And you know, so to I find out, so I got this little alien detector <laughs> so that I could test to see if I'm an alien. Now, if I'm an alien, this will boil when I hold it. So I'm going to do a test to see if I'm an alien. Can you see it? Is it boiling? No. Hmm. You can. Can you see it there? It's not boiling, is it? Well, I guess I'm not an alien. <laughs> Would you mind holding that? I mean, just as a curio. Sure. Okay, so you hold it. Yeah, I'll hold it. Just put it right. Okay, open. Oh, Look no. at it go. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you see that? Look at that. It's boiling. Okay, that's not fair. I'm so impressed. <laughs> now grab the top. Just grab up there. That's amazing. Okay. My secret's out, huh? Now we got to get serious. Okay. 
That's really neat. So I want to talk about a property called resonance. Now, Tobias talked a little bit about sound, and he said the sound is a disturbance in the air. If we're going to really understand this, we've got to understand what is a disturbance in the air. Air is molecules. What kind are they in air? Oxygen and nitrogen. And a teeny, teeny, teeny trace of hydrogen and other things. But it's mainly 80% nitrogen, 20% oxygen. And if you think of these as little molecules that are moving around because it's a gas, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look inside a tire in a car where it's been inflated under pressure, the air molecules are closer together because there's pressure. And when you get more of a vacuum, they spread out more. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's pressure. Now, if I were to be very fast with my hand and I'd push air like this, I would make a shock wave. And what would happen, some of those air molecules would be pushed up against the others. And for a second, they'd be compressed. And that compression would then move more molecules out and it would cascade clear across the room. That's what sound does. It's just a disturbance in the pressure of air. And we call that a, a sound wave. I want to show you a little video of a spring. And this is just a piece of metal spring. And actually, in this case, it's an animation. And I want you to see how you can jerk the spring and get a shock wave to go down the spring. Let's, let's take a look at that. Now watch. Little, that makes up the wave okay, is along the direction sounds. in which the wave travels. Okay. Can you see how the sound wave disturbance going down? There goes mm -hmm. another one. That's what happens in the air. When you put a little pressure on the air, you get a wave that goes through the air, a disturbance. And that's what Edison was using to push his microphone and to be able to then turn that into electricity. Okay, can you kind of understand the sound? Now, let's go a little bit further. Different sounds have different pitches. Some are high, some are low. And the difference in the pitch is how often we send a pulse. If we send pulses close together, it's a high frequency. If we send them real low, then it's a low frequency. In fact, about the lowest we can hear is if you get down, and it depends on who it is, but if you get down around 20 pulses a second, then it's down where it's pretty hard to hear. Unless you're an elephant. We learned about that, okay? Now, this is all background because we're going to get into something pretty interesting, okay. I think. I, I brought this little contraption, and if we can get a shot on that, uh, there we go. It's a contraption with these little balls. And if you'll notice, the balls are hanging by strings, and every string has a different length. Oh, there goes the aliens. <laughs> Too bad. This ball has very short strings. This has very long strings. So if I were to push all these balls together, how fast do you think they would swing? It turns out the one with a long string would swing slower than the one with a short string. And I'd like to show you that. I'm going to turn on this camera by magic. Oh, look at that. Now you can see the balls. And now I'm going to make them swing. Now remember down here, it's a very short string, so it's going to swing faster. 
Here's a very long one, so it's going to swing slower. Let's see if you can see the difference. Are you ready? Here we go. See, little ones are going faster. Big ones getting slower. And it's interesting. You notice how they go through patterns. Here's a random one. Now they're all together. Now they're going to flip into a, another random state, and then they're going to go into a nice smooth curve again. That's so cool. Isn't that fun? <laughs> that is neat. And that's because of the frequency changing. And this is how I stop them. Okay. So you can see these are swinging at different, different, at different rates because the strings are different lengths. And that is something that is very important as we get into this resonance stuff. And this can get real interesting, so bear with me. I have some tuning forks. Mm -hmm. okay? okay? Will you help me with them? I will. Oh, can we turn this up just a little bit more? Oh, that's nice. Hear that carbon? Okay, you hold that. <laughs> I can. Okay. I brought a rubber mallet. That's a hammer that has rubber tips. And that allows me to be able to hit this piece of metal. We call these tuning forks. Listen. Can you hear it? No matter how many times I hit it, it's the same pitch. How come? And it's because it's always the same size. With this size piece of metal, that's how fast it vibrates. It's actually making sound waves go out at the speed at which it vibrates. If I would cut this off shorter, like the strings over there, it would vibrate faster, so we would hear a higher pitch. Guess what? This one's smaller. Mm -hmm. So let's listen to the difference. And of course, both of them. <laughs> You're in both? Mm -mm. Can't. <laughs> okay, so pieces of metal vibrate at different speeds depending on how thick the metal is and how long it is. Why does it Vibrate at that speed because that's just the property at which it does it. Just like those strings. Longer strings make it swing farther, so it's slower. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And when these vibrate, they make sound waves which we can hear. Right. All right. Are you with me so far? I am. I, I think that's pretty neat. So do those correlate to notes? Then? Notes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This one has the sound of a C. And if you look on here, it says it is 2,048 cycles per second. Oh, better not do that. <laughs> now, this is where it starts getting interesting because we're going to now go to the playground. Okay. Okay, would you like to stand play. up? Uh -huh. Okay, she loves to play. <laughs> I do. Okay, this is, we're going to have a ball. <laughs> what I want you to do is see if you can swing this ball. Can you do that for mm -hmm. me? Okay. So nice you have a white top. Okay, just swing it in front of yourself. 
Has anyone ever tried swinging? On a swing? Swings are fun. And when you're in a swing, you pump, right? Mm -hmm. But some people don't go very high when they pump, and it's because they haven't learned the rhythm. If you want the swing to go higher, you have to always pump at the same time. If when the swing is coming backwards, you pump with your feet, it slows it down. And keep swinging. And it's because you're pushing the wrong time if you want it to go. Now, this time, I'm going to let you just have it hang here for a second, okay? But over here, so we've got a nice white thing. You see this? Watch. So if I'm pumping, and I pump, pump, as long as I keep pushing it just the right time, it gets bigger. But if I wait until it's coming back and then I go forward, then it stops. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you've got to push at exactly the right time. Now this is where sound starts to get really interesting because sound is kind of like a push. It's a push of these shock waves coming out. And remember, the pitch is how fast you're pushing, how, ma how much time is between each push. So if you have something, let's shorten the string. There we go. If you have something that's swinging very fast, if you always want to be pushing at just the right time, you have to have a higher pitch frequency so it's pushing more often. Now try it. Now notice it's swinging much lower. So if I want it to keep pushing it, I'd have to push, wait, push, wait. See how much slower I'm pushing? Mm -hmm. So that would be a low pitch sound. And that's where it starts to get kind of interesting because if I strike one of these tuning forks and it's making the sound and I put it close to the other, it doesn't make this one start vibrating because this one tries to vibrate at the wrong speed and so the sound coming off is interfering. If I have two that are exactly the same size, well then I can transfer that vibration in one to the other because the wave just keeps pushing at the same time. And so it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's neat. And you can do some really amazing things with that. This is a little wine glass. And some of you have seen something like this before. Yeah, we need the microphone about now. Can you hear that? So what's happening? I'm vibrating this wine glass, and it's going back and forth, but because of the size of the glass, it vibrates at one frequency. And if I do it again, it's gonna be the same frequency. So it's the whole glass vibrating. Yeah, take your other hand and fill the glass. I think you can fill it vibrate. You have to only touch it lightly. Oh, you can. So you stop it. That's okay, cool. <laughs> so it's vibrating at its natural frequency. And what makes it natural? Well, it's how stiff it is and how tall it is. So it's got a natural frequency. If I were to be a great tenor, which I don't think Are I am. No, I don't think I am. <laughs> if I could do the right frequency that's the same pitch, that right there, it would make this glass start to vibrate. Uh -huh. And if I got louder, it would vibrate bigger and bigger and bigger, and what would happen? 
Eventually. Let's try a little video where someone tried that okay. exactly that exact same thing. Okay. The wine glass video. If you see it, now listen. Oh, look at that. Oh. You want to see that again? So it starts vibrating, and as it vibrates, it vibrates so big that it shatters the glass. Oh. Pretty cool. Wow. That's resonance. And remember. There was no one pushing it. It was just the sound waves pushing it. If you turn the pitch down just a little bit, it wouldn't work because it would push it the first time, and the second time it would push, it would still be coming back, so it, would, it wouldn't vibrate very much. If you turn the frequency up, if you turn the pitch up, it would make it not work. If you turn it down, it has to be exactly at the resonant frequency for that glass. So there's one frequency this will do. This tuning fork will only give us that pitch because that's its resonant frequency. That make any sense? I love this one. That's really neat. It's neat, isn't it? Yeah. All right, now where are we going to take this? We've got resonance figured out now. Now we know how to make noises because I've I vibrate this cup, it gives out that frequency. I vibrate these, they give out their frequency. By the way, I can get the same frequency this way. Interesting. But how do we hear it? And that's the really amazing thing. In so much of science, the most amazing thing about science is us. <laughs> We're amazing, and, I, and I'm not not being conceited here, I mean, but we are amazing. And the way we hear these sounds is really amazing thing. You do it with your ears. I mean, most of you know that. <laughs> but how does your ear hear that vibration? And that's something that is amazing beyond amazing. There are three parts to the ear. First of all, there's the outer ear. Do you have one? I do. You sure? Can you not see my ears? You have a light. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> so the outer ear is made to capture sounds and to pull them into the ear. Okay. So they go into the, into the opening and inside. That's the outer ear. When you get inside, it goes back and it hits a thin membrane called the eardrum. Does anybody know about how big a dime is? Mm -hmm. The eardrum is about half as big as a dime. So it's not very big. And when the sound hits that thin drum, it vibrates it. Because th those are the air molecules pushing against it. Now you still can't hear it, but that drum's going there. And it's going at whatever speed the pitch is. If it's a high pitch, it'll go high. It'll go fast. <coughs> if it's a low pitch, it'll go slow. Hydrogen water. Hydrogen water to the rescue. Would you like to talk for a minute? <laughs> no, I really wouldn't. <laughs> I'm very intrigued with this. I was not prepared for how that felt, the vibration on that. Isn't it? I'm glad you came tonight. Me too. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to our ears. Okay. Okay, so you've got this drum vibrating, but you still can't hear because to hear, you've got to somehow get a signal up to the brain. 
okay? And all we've got is this little membrane going back and forth. So imagine if you were inventing the air and you got the, the air wave, excuse me, the sound wave through air coming in, vibrating this membrane, then how do you get it to the brain? There is a connection to the brain and it's kind of like a wire. We call it the nerve cells. They carry electricity. So if we make some electricity, it can go to the brain. And if the electricity turns on and off at the frequency of the sound, then we would be able to hear it, right? So we've got to make electricity, and we've got to make it different for every pitch. Otherwise, when we hear a sound, all sound the same pitch. I want to hear different pitches, right? So the eardrum is about half the size of a dime. And hooked up to the back of the, ear of the eardrum is a bone. It's a bone, a little bone, which is hooked to another bone, which is hooked to a third bone. Three bones hooked together on the back of the eardrum. Now, why in the world would we do that? The bones vibrate with that membrane and they amplify the pressure. There's not enough pressure just in the sound coming in your ear to be able to make a good signal for the brain. So these three bones connect to it and vibrate. Those bones are called the middle ear, okay? And the last bone has got a little teeny footprint. The, the edge of it's much smaller, about 1 20th as small as the eardrum which means it pushes with about 20 times the pressure. And it pushes on a thing in the inner ear that looks like a snail. You know how snails kind of curve around? Well, that's what it looks like. It's actually not a snail, it's your inner ear. But this last little bone pushes on it and it pushes 20 times harder than the eardrum pushes because it magnifies that pressure. And inside the snail, part of the snail-looking part of the ear, is fluid. There's water. And that water carries the sound, like air does, only it takes more energy to do it. That's why we need more pressure. And so that same shock wave goes inside the snail, and it rotates around. And inside the snail, there are little hairs, little groups of hairs. They stick up. Do these kind of look like hairs? They're smaller than this, sir. Mm -hmm. You need a microscope to really look at these little hairs. But when the sound comes into that part of the snail or the inner ear, the hairs start to vibrate because the sound wave pushes them. That's amazing. Yeah. And though the hairs are vibrating, we still can't hear. We've got to turn that vibration into electricity to be able to send it up the nerve to the brain. And so how do we do that? Well, the hairs vibrate, and actually there's a, a taller hair and then there's a shorter one, and they're connected. And when the tall hair vibrates, then the one next to it opens a little valve. I'm simplifying a little bit, a little valve, and lets potassium ions go inside the hair underneath the hair. Wow. 
Wow. And the potassium opens another valve, so calcium ions come in, which then triggers the cells at the bottom of the hair, which generate electricity, which it sends to the brain. Wow, amazing. Oh, you want to know how amazing it is? <laughs> Tell me. Well, look at this. I want to show you a little video clip. Now, I'm going to show you the snail, and I'm going to show you inside the snail, and you see these little hairs that vibrate. Now, remember, the short one vibrates faster because that's what it's tuned to. That's its resonant frequency. The long one's a little bit lower frequency. And in the snail, the hairs are all different lengths, they start out at the very opening, they're very, very short, so they pick up the real high frequencies. And then as you go back further, it's the middle frequencies, and way back inside the snell is where it picks up the low frequencies. And by the way, that was a good idea, wasn't it? <laughs> because if we did it so the big ones were on the opening, the low frequencies and the high frequencies were way inside, High frequencies won't go all the way in there, but low frequencies will. So it was a good design, okay? Watch this little clip. Here are the hairs. ...sit on top of hair cells and are grouped together as hair cell... ...hair cell ...and the hair bundles are moved. The hair bundle on top of the hair cell turns... The hair. That's not very good audio, is it? His well, resonance isn't working. Let me very just well. tell you a little bit about <laughs> it. Play it without the sound, and I'll keep telling it. Here we go. Awesome. Okay, so these are the little hairs that are now not moving because there must not be any sound. <laughs> and let there be sound. There they go. Can you see how they're vibrating? Uh -huh. And they vibrate only if the sound is exactly the right pitch for them. Every bundle is a different pitch. And so now imagine these being located in the inner ear, which is where the, the hairs are located. Now let's see, we jumped over that part. Uh-huh, we, we got down for This is where it actually creates electricity, which goes into there. There we go. Now you can see the snail. In the outer side of the snail, where it first comes in, is where it hears the high frequency. Those are the real short little hairs, and it can hear a pitch like a piccolo. Halfway up, it's mid-frequency, and that would be something like a trumpet, okay? And as you go clear up into the very center of the snell, that's where the long hairs are. They can hear something like a tuba, okay? So as those all pick up the vibrations, they send the electricity out the nerve cell to the brain. Now, the brains are absolutely amazing. They're absolutely amazing. You know, um, we see because our eyes generate electrical impulse that sends up the optic nerve to the brain. And uh, I once heard a news report about somebody who had been in a terrible accident where they had a bad injury and the injury severed. It cut the optic nerve going to the brain. So now the electrical impulses couldn't go from the eye to the brain so the person couldn't see. And the surgeons meticulously connected the nerves back together. And the body's amazing, it healed those nerve connections. Mm. But here's the problem, there are so many. And they didn't know which one went to which one. Mm. 
Can you imagine what a picture would look like? You look out there, and what if all the different things were scrambled around? Can you imagine how strange that would look? It's like my computer sometimes when it loses sync. But the amazing thing was when the person looked, their image was all scrambled up. But then as they looked back and forth and over time, the brain figured out where each pixel went and it reprogrammed itself to turn it back into a picture. And the brain takes those electronic signals, it's just little pulses of electricity coming into the brain and figures out which ones are high frequencies, which ones are low, and pretty soon it can hear which instrument is playing, it can hear what I'm saying, it can sort it all out. And I think it really is an amazing thing. And it's all because if you have exactly the right frequency for this object, this object wants to vibrate at one speed. And if your sound is just the right speed, it will always push it like a swing and make it bigger and bigger. And that tells you it's the frequency I'm tuned for. And you have all those little hairs in there at different frequencies. And by which one vibrates? Oh, it's 1,230 hertz. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? I can. Yeah. So that is the story of resonance. And that is the story of the amazing ability that we have to be able to hear. And of course, it's kind of the same thing we do when we talk. When we talk, we start with lungs full of air, right? And we shoot out the air. Now listen to this. <sighs> Do you understand? <sighs> Just air doesn't make sound. Maybe a little bit of sound, but not really sound. So when we want to make a noise, we run the air through some, I'm not going to call them hairs. In fact, should we call them vibrating cords, vocal cords? And as the air goes through, they vibrate, and they push out the sound waves. Just like the air takes them in, the vocal cords push them out. And on the ends of the vocal cords, we have muscles. So we can stretch them tighter or smaller. And that means we can make them vibrate very low. <laughs> when you hear they're very low, it's because they're very loose. I can't do that. If you'd relax, you could. <laughs> or we can tighten our muscles, and they get a little bit higher pitch, and it's starting to sound like my muscles are starting to get really, really tight. I get really tight. Wow, could you do that again? No. No. <laughs> it would be dangerous. <laughs> I think it's really exciting. It and you know, the thing that I want to, to really make as a point tonight is we can understand this stuff. We can really, really understand it, which is exciting. And once you learn how to understand it, then you can make things like telephones mm -hmm. and cell phones and computers and so many other things. But there's another point I want to make, too. You know, the ear, those little hairs that vibrate and how the ions go in and it creates the electricity. There are still parts of that process we can't figure out. 
part of it still a mystery to science? We've studied it and we've studied it and we've studied it, which means there's more to discover. And when we do figure out better how that works, I'll bet we learn how to make something we don't know how to make today. So many of the best ideas we have in science came from observing nature. It's exciting to see how far it goes. One of the real basic rules of science is the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know. The more we see how much there is to learn. It's not like, oh, we got to almost learn. There was a time around the 1900s where the head of the US Patent Office said they're probably going to close down in a few years because we've learned everything there is to learn. And that was 120 years ago. We have learned more since the year 2000. In the last 20 years, we've learned much more than mankind has learned since the beginning of man. The amount of information we're learning is accelerating. And I can only imagine what we're going to learn in the next 10 years, 20 years. And it's so exciting to think the guys that are going to really learn that are some of you. Now, I want to go back to these little balls again because you, you kind of saw how the different lengths swing at different rates. But I want you to notice how they start out right together and then pretty soon they form an S, which scientists call a sine wave. And then pretty soon they look completely random, like every other one is going in the other direction. And then soon they come back into that smooth wave again. Watch this. Do we have a camera? All right. Oh, oops, oops. Let's do this well. Okay, here we go on three. Three. Now see how it's the S? Mm -hmm. Now look how they start to look random. Can you see that? Now wouldn't it be amazing if they come back together in that S wave? Here it comes. Wait for it. Can you see it? it? There it is again. That's so cool. And that's only because they're different lengths, and so they're all swinging at a different frequency. And those frequencies start to go into these patterns. And that's the kind of stuff we learn in math, and then we start learning how to do <coughs> all kinds of neat things with that. <coughs> I'm choking. Please talk. <laughs> Well, a lot of your students are writing in tonight saying that they're, it's amazing what the body is and um, what the frequency of life is, really. There's really? so much to understand. I was wondering, you know, I was thinking about the engineer who had to engineer our bodies. I wondered how many times he had to go through a process to figure out. Well, it's really amazing that uh, we have the power to create things. And mm -hmm. in all of these inventions we hear about, Alexander Bell tonight and mm -hmm. Thomas Edison, etc., and they start trying to make something, uh, always turns out to be more work than they mm -hmm. thought. And I used to think, why does everything have to be so darn hard? <laughs> why can't it just work? And then later on I realized, I'm so glad it's hard, mm -hmm. because if it wasn't hard, everybody else would be doing it, and there'd be nothing left for me. <laughs> it's, it's true. 
the prize is for the one that is persistent and willing to make the effort. And most people fail at doing the really great things in their lives, but they fail while they're still in school. While they're just getting the basic knowledge to be able to do any of this, they fail. And they fail because they don't realize how much power it's going to give them, how fun it is to really make neat, 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 neat stuff. And there's a lot of neat stuff to make. You know, the science fair is uh, one of the reasons that I really got interested in, in applied science and really doing things with science. I hope a lot of you are going to get very serious about the science fair this year. We had a wonderful one last year. But this year, I want to take it to a whole new level. And there's so many different things. Remember that my first science fair, I was in the 10th grade, and my project didn't work. It was a complete dud. I don't even talk very much about it. It was such a bad dud. But I started it early enough that I had enough time to put it back under the bed and start a second project for the 10th grade science fair, which was going to be running the car on hydrogen. And that didn't work either in the 10th grade. So I put that in the garage and had a time to get to my third project, which was germinating bean seeds with ultrasonic waves. It's fascinating that the projects are a lot harder than they look. Now, the hydrogen car project came back in 11th grade for me and didn't work. And it was finally my last chance in the 12th grade, my last year, the hydrogen car became a reality. It worked. And it won a very nice scholarship and a gold and silver award, which, you know, I sit and stare at. And <laughs> you, you should. You earned yeah, it. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I won it. You won it. I won it. You won the it. The point is, don't throw away the excitement of your future career because math is hard. Mm -hmm. Math is hard. Change your attitude and realize math is power. And I don't care if it's as hard for me to learn math as it was for Einstein. I'm still going to do it. And he said it was harder for him than anyone. And yet he did things with his math that leaves the world still in awe. Do you remember his miracle year? How many papers, scientific, revolutionary papers, did he write in one year? Who knows? Seven in one year. That's impossible. And that's the guy that couldn't learn math. If anybody can't learn math, then you've believed a lie. It's really true. Anybody can learn math. Some people enjoy it more than others, but I'll tell you what. Most people enjoy what they're good at, which means when you finally master it, you're going to really enjoy it. We talk about the power to see the sunrise. One of my dreams is to create a math program 
for our students that are not going to go into science and engineering as careers, but that would give you just the essential math that you need from algebra to geometry and to trigonometry and finally into calculus. You have to master just the core part of each of those math fields to be able to see the sunrise. And the sunrise I'm talking about is the beauty of physics. When you can see physics like that, it's so amazing. And yeah, if, if you'll do like the engineer students do and the scientists, and you really go through and master all of those subjects of math, that's wonderful and it'll be a great career. But for those that have other life missions, if we could just get you enough so you could see the beauty of the sunrise and you'd realize how amazing our world is. And that's a project I'm working on right now. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, everyone, and thank you guys for being here tonight. We'll see you next time. Well, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Have a great one.